Ezra, in chapter 3. <clears throat> if you found your place, say word. Okay. Let us pray. Holy Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you, God, for the grace that you have extended to each one of us that's even allowed us to be here this morning. As we gather to worship you, we declare that you are the high king of heaven. And we invite your presence, Father, Holy Spirit, into us as we, uh, as we hear and sit under your word. And so I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds and open our eyes to see the wonderful truth of your word and give us the strength, God, to apply it in our lives and to live it out faithfully. Lord, we trust that you will do all of this according to your glory and your purpose in our lives, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we look in Ezra chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and considering the entire chapter, and we'll read through most of the chapter, and then come back and highlight portions of it as we go through the text today. Uh, But beginning in verse 1, Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and his brothers arose and built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation For they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. And verses 4 through 6 tell us they were celebrating the Feast of Booths, and they were continually offering burnt offerings before the Lord. And verse 7 says they gave money to masons and carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission that... They had from Cyrus, the king of Persia, verse eight. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work of the appointed or began the work and appointed the Levites from the 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So what's happening is they've, they've come back for another time of festival and, and worship before God. And so there were three times a year where the people of Israel would gather to Jerusalem from the cities that they were scattered about. And here, as they've returned from exile in Babylon, they've been scattered about now in the cities of Judah, the territory. But Jerusalem is where the temple is. And so that's what this verse is saying. There was a second time. It was in the second month that they gathered together as the people of God to worship God. 
Verse 9, then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Conmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad and with their sons and brothers of Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Verse 10, now the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. And so the priests were standing there and the Levites and they were, they were standing there ready to give praise, verse 10 says, according to the instructions or directions from King David of Israel. Verse 11, they sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This was a great celebration for them. Verse 11 tells us that they they sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Verse 12, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a, shout, with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. <clears throat> this morning, the title of the message is When Worship Becomes Our Priority. I think that's what we see happening for the people of Israel here as they come back to celebrate God and come back into the land and see that God is bringing His blessings upon them and leading them. Not leaving them, but leading them. It was August 29th of 2005. Some of you know that date automatically as I begin to share. The church in New Orleans was scattered as a result of Hurricane Katrina. I remember the feeling of disconnectedness as my family was temporarily relocated at a home in Pollock. We had a place to live, but our our hearts were still very connected in a very real way to our home that was back in New Orleans and to our faith community at Edgewater Baptist Church. It was our land. it, It was our people. It was a place of our home. It was what we knew. We were comfortable there. We loved it there. But our lives had been turned upside down. We rushed out of the city so quickly, grabbing what we could. And when we finally returned, we returned only to devastation. I remember the day so vividly as I was driving back on the campus for the first time since the floodwaters had resided. The pristine beauty of the campus was no more. Mud was everywhere. Black mold was growing up the walls onto the ceiling. Ceilings of many of the apartments had caved in and collapsed. Nothing, nothing was where it was supposed to be. In fact, I remember opening the silverware drawer and of all things, there was a can of hairspray in the silverware drawer. Nothing was where it was supposed to be. The memory of that day will be forever etched in my mind. I've encountered a few people since that day who have oddly enough, shared a similar story with me. The story that they shared with me was they, they remember as they, <clears throat> as they saw people coming in on that day of, of the return, they remember a story that on so many levels they were gripped with the reality of starting over again. They remembered seeing this guy drive on the campus pulling a trailer, an empty utility trailer, And thinking to themselves as they saw that truck go on campus, I should have done the same thing. 
But by the end of the day, they saw that same truck leaving with an empty utility trailer that had one Rubbermaid container strapped down on the back of that trailer. For so many, that it was a fitting picture of the way that Hurricane Katrina had uprooted so many lives. For my family, everything we owned, which wasn't much at the time, had been reduced to one Rubbermaid container. As I left campus that day with one Rubbermaid container strapped down on my empty trailer, I called Tara and said, I grabbed everything that I could that was salvageable, and I'm heading back. But the weeks and the months which followed, they were pretty remarkable. People began returning to the city. They began coming back to the city, and they began to clean up this devastating mess that they saw all around them. They they became busy with, with rebuilding their lives. Edgewater, and many other churches for that matter, church bodies for that matter, across the the city of New Orleans began the arduous task of gutting and and rebuilding their homes, their church. And then there was the great day where those congregations individually, they, they, they came together at that point that was significant for their fellowship and they resumed meeting together again. The remnant of the congregation that had returned would quickly come back together and they would quickly return to that campus perhaps and they would quickly meet and worship the Lord together at that spot. I remember one of those meetings when coming back. It was at Dr. Charles Ray's house. He was a professor or is a professor at New Orleans Seminary and we we gathered at his house to worship as the church It was an amazing time as we gathered there because that community that we had been missing and that time of worship and fellowship that we had been missing and were not able to engage in with that that fellowship that we love so much, we were able to do that again. And it was tremendous as we gathered there and were able to praise and to worship God together. It It was tremendously refreshing for our soul. It was a time filled with joy, certainly filled with emotion. We were able to gather for the first time with so many of our brothers and sisters, with our faith family, and it was tremendous. That's what's happening in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. The people of God have been spread apart. They've been exiled. Their homes have been devastated under Nebuchadnezzar. And they finally are coming back and resettling the land. And now, now they are able to gather as God's people to Jerusalem, to that place where they have so longed to be, to worship the Lord together. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that in the seventh month, they came together and the sons of Israel were in the cities, but the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. That is such a, a powerful statement of what is going on. They were gathering together as one man, as one person. This tells us they were unified as a people around the worship of God. There was something that unified God's people. And what unified God's people was that when they came together, they worshipped God. They were unified around the altar of God because they knew that it was at the altar of God where God had promised to meet them in worship. They were unified around the altar of God and they were unified around service to their God. 
And we see this tremendous picture here. And so this morning, I, I, wanna, I want us to see what, what happens when, when, when worship becomes our priority, as it did for the people of Israel here. What happens for us? I want us to ask that question. What happens for us when, when worship becomes our priority? What begins to happen among the community of faith, God's covenant people, when worship becomes our priority and so grips our lives? And so as the people of God, we, we must prioritize the worship of God. As the people of God, we learn that we must prioritize the worship of God. And so a real practical question, why are we here today? Why have we come to this space, in this place, in this city, as this people? Why have we come here today? Well, we've come here today to worship the Lord. We've come here today to celebrate His goodness and what He is doing in our life and to praise His name. We have come here today to submit ourselves and sit under the teaching of His Word and and to gather with like-minded brothers and sisters and, and sing His praise. This is the height of the week for the believer, for the Christian church. Worship happens here on Sunday. Worship happens here that doesn't happen anywhere else in the city on Sunday by this group of people because we come together as one body united to worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one thing that I think we should see is that when we begin to prioritize worship, here's what's going to happen. When God's people prioritize worship, we will experience freedom in worship. We will experience freedom in worship. In verse 3, look at what it says. So that they, or so they, set up the altar on its foundation. For they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now I want you to know that when we prioritize the worship of God, I think what we learn here is that we will walk in faith and not in fear. We will walk by faith and not in fear. The people of God, as they gather to rebuild the altar and begin worshiping Him there, and they have fear. They're fearful over what is happening. In fact, if we look forward to chapter 4, verse 4, we see this fear that continues. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building, verse 5, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what happens at the end of chapter 3? They begin rebuilding the temple, right? They lay the foundation. But then there are others who are around in the community that begin, uh, they begin persecuting them. And the people of God grow fearful. They grow scared. And really what underscores this fear is their past experience of being uncertain of just... How far is God willing to go to protect us? How far is God willing to go to protect them in their current situation? You see, it's a lack of faith, right? The people of God are gathered there to worship the Lord, yet there is this fear that is kind of underlying what they've come to do. They're worried about those on the outside. And they're focusing on their enemies and their problems rather than focusing on God. Yeah, I don't know that we're really that much different, right, when it comes to worshiping the Lord. When it comes to having freedom to worship God. 
I mean, are, are there things in our lives that equally cause us fear and hinder us in our coming to worship the Lord and making worshiping God a priority? <clears throat> Maybe there's fear of what others will think if you just come clean and repent of that sin in your life. Maybe there's fear of what might happen at work if, if you really begin to live for Jesus. If we really begin to take that bold stand and, and speak out and stand on our convictions. Maybe there's fear of what others will think if we, if we boldly take that step of faith and, and we go where we believe God is calling us and we don't allow fear to hinder us in that. Maybe there's fear in going and seeking reconciliation from a brother or sister in the faith who has hurt you or wronged you. You you fill in the blank. Is there some fear that grips your heart and and is hindering you, hindering me from, from being free to worship Jesus Christ this morning? You see, what happened is the fear didn't just hinder that worship event for the people of God. That fear hindered they're rebuilding the temple. It hindered and it impacted their lives. We can read through the rest of the story. They began this process in, in 537 B.C., but they didn't complete the temple until 516 B.C. They allowed fear to dominate them and hinder them from really being able to worship the Lord. And so I want to challenge us this morning that we don't allow fear to hinder us from worshiping the Lord Hear what the Lord Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. He said, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Do you hear that, child of God? Your value before God. Fear not. Don't allow fear to distract us from coming before God and worshiping him. In 1 John 4.18, the apostle writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears has not been made perfect in love. And he says, we love because he first loved us. You see, worshiping God, is, it's, it comes from the spring of knowing the love of God. Secondly, this morning, I, I want us to see that when we prioritize worship, when, when God's people worship, our worship will be pleasing to God. When we make worship a priority, our worship will be pleasing to God. When we prioritize the worship of God, we will worship Him according to His way and not according to our own way. We'll worship Him according to His way and not our own way. That is the point of verses 2 and 4 in this passage. Look at verse 2. It says, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, and the son of Shealtel, and his brothers arose. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. And then that last phrase there, do you see what it says? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. As it is written in the law of Moses. And look in verse 4. There it says, they celebrated the Feast of Booths 
as it is written, and offer the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. Listen, it was very, they were very intentional to carry out God's command and God's, God's demand of them in worshiping Him. They wanted to make certain as the people of God that they were following what God had called them to do in coming and worshiping Him. And they knew the only way that they could worship God truly was to come to Him on His terms and not on their own. If there was anything they had learned in the midst of the exile, that certainly was a great truth that they had learned. You know, we can't be so bold as to think that we can just come to God in any way that we want. That our lifestyle maybe would have no consequence before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. We must recognize that and, and we must be careful not to presume upon the grace of God but to order our lives and our worship according to His command. This Feast of Booths that they gathered to celebrate, this was, it was a time where it involved all the Israelites living in tents and temporary dwellings for the entire week as they flocked to Jerusalem. And if you're interested, you can turn to Numbers chapter 29, verses 12 through 38, and you can see the detail that's laid out as to what kind of offerings and how many offerings they were to give and bring before God at the altar during that festival. And so each day there was a specific number, a set number, that started with about 18 and tiered down how many bulls they were to be offering, how many burnt offerings, how many grain offerings or peace offerings, how many offerings that they were supposed to be bringing before God. This is all stipulated. And they wanted to make certain that they were following it. But see, this Feast of Booths, it was a time where they would gather together as a week of festival to worship the Lord, and it reminded them as they would dwell in these temporary dwellings there in Jerusalem, it reminded them of their lifestyle in the wilderness. The feast was a time that occurred at the end of the agricultural year, and so they would come together as the people, and they would thank God, they would praise God for the harvest. But it was also a visible reminder to the people that God really is in control of their lives. It offered them a very visible reminder that they were a people who must find their security in God. And I think it shows us the same thing, that we are a people who must find our security in God. You see, security in life must be tempered by the believer's trust in and submission to God. Security in life must be tempered by the believer's trust in and submission to God. One commentator writes, he said, they, they would dwell in tents for the week of the festival and it would remind them that their very existence and their continued journey was dependent upon God. Just this temporary dwelling. It was the word of God and the law of God that determined how they worshipped him. You know, as I, I think between that context and our context today, there, there are so many things that tend to, to enter our lives and begin distracting us from walking with God and faithfully following God. Wouldn't it have been easy for the children of Israel to stay in their cities and in their towns and work on rebuilding the homes that had been destroyed? Work on uh, on. on recultivating the land that they were coming back to begin farming and raising their, their crop. I mean, this was their lifestyle. I mean, this was their, their livelihood, right? 
But instead, what we see is this commitment to come together and priority set to come together and to worship God. How are we? How are we to place a priority on worshiping God today? What does this look like for you and I to place this priority on worshiping God today? You know, many, many people today want to worship God according to their convenience, according to what fits into their schedule, and all the while thinking that a compartmentalized devotion to God is acceptable when in fact it's not. It's not for so many reasons, but I I want to point out three New Testament exhortations which I believe confront the American church right at the core of our idolatry. These texts really indict us in not making the worship of God a priority. And I think it highlights for us, they highlight for us the great need of God's people in coming together to worship Him The first one is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Listen, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is this telling us as a church? It's it's telling us as the people of God that God desires. We come together as His covenant people that we that we meet often, that we meet regularly, corporately, to worship. And that from it we derive mutually encouragement and edification. We look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and see that model for the early church as well. This is God's design for His people to come together as a body of Christ, to live for Him. It says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. These were, this was a, a necessary part of the early church in, in their growth, and their development, and walking with Christ, and in being Christian, in knowing Christ, and growing in their discipleship with Christ. You see, the church is God's gift to the believer today. We are the body of Christ And the church is where we derive encouragement from one another, where we derive instruction, where we learn and grow as disciples of Christ. Then also we see in 1 Timothy 4.13 where the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Right? To exhortation, to teaching. This is what we do even on Sunday morning. This is what we do when we have our equipping classes. This is what we do even as we gather midweek in our home groups to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to fellowship together. This is the body of Christ being fleshed out. And I would submit to you that this is God's desire for His people today. This is at the heart of God's people coming together and worshiping Him 
This is one way that we come corporately and worship the Lord our God. See, church, we mustn't think that we can compartmentalize our lives and only reserve a portion of it for worshiping Him. If our worship is to be pleasing to God, then it must be informed by His Word and flow from lives of obedience and a desire to meet with His people, the church. A Christian should not be able, I want to be careful in how I say this, but a Christian should not be able to have extended periods of time where they are absent from fellowship with other Christians in the body of Christ. God just hasn't designed it that way. God has designed that we as a church, as believers, would come together and would worship Him together and would do life together and live out the gospel together. When worshiping God becomes a priority, I want to share one more Point here, when worshiping God becomes a priority, we will be living and holy sacrifices to God. When worshiping God becomes a priority, we will be living and holy sacrifices to God. You see, when we prioritize the worship of God, we will submit all of ourselves, not just part of ourselves, to God. I want to show you how that's significant in this passage. Beginning in verse 4 and going through verse 6, there is this feast of booths occurring, but you notice the offering that's spoken about here in this text. It is the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was significant. The burnt offering was the most costly of all Old Testament offerings. Usually it was a bull that would be offered. And in the burnt offering, the whole animal would be placed on the altar. No part of the animal would be reserved for the priest to eat or part of the community to eat. The whole thing would be given and placed on the altar. The person offering the animal, would they would come forward with their animal. They would place their hand on the head of the bull. And then they would, they would slay the bull. And then the priest would take the bull and they would skin it. And they would flay it. And they would chop it up and cut it into quarters. And they'd put it all on. The, they'd arrange the wood and they'd put it all on the wood. All on the fire. They had special things they would do with the entrails. And they would also place that on the fire. And this was a pleasing aroma of a whole burnt offering, of a tremendous sacrifice before God. The significance of the offering was that it represented the whole and single-hearted devotion of a person to God. When I brought this bull, it was significant. Because I'm bringing this very costly thing And it's a symbol of me giving everything. It is a symbol of the person coming before God as if to say, I give all of me, Holy Father, to you. I give everything to you. And then notice in verses 5 and 6 here in this text, it tells us that from that day on, continually, they were offering burnt offerings to the Lord morning and evening. And it was a visible reminder of their single-hearted devotion to God. As the people of God, they were the ones who were called out of Egypt. They were the ones who were the chosen nation. They were the ones that God had led from the Babylonian captivity back into this land of Jerusalem. And they are coming before God And they are saying, God, we give all of ourselves to you. We commit everything to you. This is what I think the Apostle Paul was speaking about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. When he exhorts the church, when he exhorts the believers, 
and saying, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And because of that, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect or pleasing. This is, this is the people, this, these are the people of God coming before Him to worship Him, offering all of themselves you see, when, we, when worshiping God becomes a priority, we will be a living and holy sacrifice to God. And I want to ask you this morning, is your life a living and holy sacrifice before God? Are you holy and completely committed to Him? Are you reserving these portions and segments of your life that you're not submitting to Him in all things? Their prioritizing of the worship of God led them to a place where they were compelled. They were compelled to labor and give for the glory of God. Their worshiping God compelled them to labor and give for the glory of God. And I want want you to see this in verse 7. It says, then, it was then. So verse 6, there's a, there's a divide here in verses 6 and 7. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings in verse 6 to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. And then verse 7, then, so here's what they do. Because of worship, they see the need here. And they, they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission that they had received from this edict of Cyrus in chapter 1, verse 2. If you back up to chapter 2, verse 68, something we didn't see last week, but I pointed out this morning, some of the heads of the father's households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, that is, when they arrived at the place where the temple was, this place where they are worshiping at the altar, when they arrived there, they offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold dramicas, 5,000 silver minas, 100 priestly garments. You see what's going on here. Listen, church, when God captivates our hearts and we begin submitting ourselves and living a living and holy sacrifice before God, I think it places us in a position where we are ready and willing to worship God, faithfully following and living for God positions us to receive the blessings of being used by God to accomplish the work that He has purposed us to do. When we commit ourselves wholly and completely to God, not withholding from Him, we will be living in the joy of knowing the One who laid down His very life that we might have eternal Life. So you see that they were giving for the glory of God. They were wanting to see the kingdom work established. They were wanting to see the temple built. And they were faithfully following God. Verse 11 tells us that they were 
expressing joy to God. So there was this giving that they, uh, they, they brought of what they had before God, but then there was this laboring. They were laboring for God. They were working for God. Verses 8 and 9, even 10, detail for us this setting aside and this putting in place this, uh, this working group to oversee the rebuilding and the laying of the foundation for the temple. And they were laboring faithfully for God. I want to ask you this morning, how is it that God is calling you to labor for Him? How is it that God is leading you to engage in, in working for His kingdom and in making His glory known? I've got to confess to you, yesterday as we were, um, we were at our house, there were people that drove up in the community that we live in, in our neighborhood, Cars, several cars, I saw them go by kind of in a line and one stopped here and one stopped a little further down the road and then another one turned the corner and when they got out I realized what was going on. Two by two they were coming out into the communities. They were witnessing. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they were going around the communities. They were sharing their faith. And I was challenged deeply. And I wasn't sure the purity of my motives at that point. I was challenged deeply because they were out sharing their faith, but I've not yet been able to walk around my community and knock on the doors and tell them of the love of Jesus Christ. I try to live it out faithfully, but I've not done that. I wasn't sure, though, if my, uh, my jealousy maybe or... Um, my, I don't want to say envy, but my, my jealousy was that they were out sharing or was it my love for God calling me to go out and do the same thing? So I, I wrestled with that and had a conversation and prayerfully they'll come back so that we can have more conversations. But the question that I have to wrestle with and we all have to wrestle with is how is God calling us to reach our community with the gospel of Christ? How is God calling us to be faithful in proclaiming this message of His salvation in our life through Jesus Christ? How is He calling us to be faithful in taking this message into our community, into the workplaces? If those who don't truly know Jesus Christ are willing to go and share their way, why shouldn't we be all the more zealous to share with others the love of Christ and that which brings eternal life? And so faithfully following God, hear this out, and we, when we worship God and commit all we have to Him, faithfully following God will position us to, to be used by God, to work for Him, to live for His glory. And so in verse 11, here's what's going on. They began singing praise and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His, His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. They were expressing this joy as they saw the foundation of the temple being laid. There was joy for them in, in walking with the Lord. And I want you to know that God desires that we experience this joy as they begin to see this thing come to, happen, come to pass, the fruit of their work. They begin to see this, this foundation on the temple be, being laid. They see progress happening and there was joy for these people. There were joy for these, uh, these covenant people of God. 
When we're walking with God and being led by His Spirit, there's an understanding of purpose and, and fulfillment that's supernatural. And you begin to know, this is why God has placed me here. This is why God has called me to walk in this way or share my faith here. This is why God has called me to be His hands and feet here. This is why God has called me in this unique way and equipped me in this unique way to minister to others. But then we get to something in verse 12 that kind of just turns the table on us. And in verse 12, it says, Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they weren't rejoicing and singing praise and overjoyed. Instead, it says they were weeping. And when I read these verses, I, I wasn't sure how to understand what was going on. There's a seeming time of great joy, but as I thought deeply and prayed over the passage, I began to see what was occurring. Notice the distinction of who was rejoicing and who was weeping. It was the younger ones who had come that were rejoicing. They had not seen the former temple, but those who had seen the former temple, they were the ones who were weeping. These were the older ones, the older ones in the community. They were saddened. You know, I think the old adage rings true. Sometimes you don't know how good you've got it until it's gone. Perhaps that's what they're experiencing at this point. I think in these verses we have an accurate picture of the life as the people of God, of life as the people of God. There, there are times in the journey mixed with both overwhelming joy and sadness. There's a, a realization that this is not the way that it was supposed to be but it becomes our new reality. I think that's what they were experiencing as they saw the foundation of the temple being laid. They recognized that it was not as glorious as the former temple of Solomon, that which they used to worship in. Haggai 2.3 tells us that. Who is left? He asked the question, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory speaking of this specific time of rebuilding the temple? He says, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? See, I think they recognize the error of their straying from God and realize the consequences of forsaking the worship of their God. And you know what happened? They wept. They wept with a loud voice. These who saw the former temple realized the same thing and they wept in the same way. They were unified in their realization. They wept with one voice. The text doesn't say that they repented, but must have been what was occurring in the midst of this weeping, a a great sorrow for what had happened. You know, and it it parallels the unnatural consequences of the fall that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. Sin has so stained our world and our lives that we are in great need of one who will forever annihilate sin and its devastating consequences that remain. One who will right the wrongs that have occurred. One who will remove the physical remnants and the effects of sin and the fall and accomplish a work of restoration. There's a great need for this one And I'm sure for each of us, hear this out, I'm sure for each of us that there are remnants of our past. There are remnants of the sin that we've sown that will haunt us as long as we walk this earth. 
We, like the priest and the old men, learn the very real lesson that sin brings consequences. And sometimes those consequences can even become fixed parts of our lives. Perhaps you're reminded often of a sin or of sins of the past that have manifested themselves in a, in a way metaphorically as a, a thorn in the flesh. Maybe a marriage that went horribly wrong or a wayward child. It may be a physical condition that resulted from a sinful lifestyle of wayward living. And these things continually serve to keep us humble and on our knees before God. But we must recognize the sins of the past for what they are. They're the past. They're behind. They're not ahead of us. And so we would say, don't let the devil rob you of the joy of walking with Christ. In a very real sense, though, this is, this is deeper on some levels than simply the devil stealing the Christian's joy. This is looking at life and realizing that that point which error and sin changed the course of our lives and everything is different now because of it. And in some ways we have grown to rejoice, but in other ways, because of the pain that's still there, we weep. You see how that can be happening for these older ones as they have these mixed emotions, but they are weeping over seeing this temple You know, there are some here who've recognized the sin from the past that way and they've dealt with it and have come to a place of peace. And they've done it properly. They've done it through repentance before the Lord. But I'm sure there are some here today who've not dealt with their sin and the burden that that it's bearing is laying and weighing heavy on your soul. You need to know the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning even in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I want us to be assured that while these consequences are very real and very lasting on earth, Hear this out. There is one who stands as an advocate with the Father and He, Jesus Christ, has shed His blood on the cross of Calvary to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. And the penalty has been paid and salvation is secure for all those who have repented of sin and confessed Christ as Lord and submitted their lives to Him as a living sacrifice, holy and completely devoted to God. The call of God in the life of every believer is to wholly submit our lives to Him. So I want to ask us this morning, when we prioritize the worship of God, we'll walk by faith and not in fear. So are you able to freely worship God this morning? Or is fear holding you back from worshiping God freely When we prioritize the worship of God, we will worship Him according to His way and not according to our own. Let me ask you, is your worship pleasing to God or have you relegated God to some compartment of your life? You see, when we prioritize the worship of God, we will submit all of ourselves, not just part of ourselves. Can your life be considered a living and holy sacrifice to God? Are you doing your own thing? 
worshiping at your own convenience or trying to in your own way. Is your worship of God compelling you to labor and give for his glory? I want to ask you to consider these things this morning. Pray over these things this morning. Let us submit and surrender our very hearts before God in these matters this morning. I'm going to close us in prayer. And at this time, you can come and kneel if you'd like to just confess something before God. Or you can sit down and kneel there where you are. Or you can stand up and sing God's praise for what he's doing in your life. But I want to invite you this morning to respond as the Lord is leading you. Let us pray. Holy Father. Father.